Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. If I could change one thing about how we think and talk about misogyny, it would be reducing the threat of shame as well as guilt. Hello, welcome to the Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. A quick announcement before we get started today. I am going to be giving the Peltison Lecture at the University of California at Irvine, which is uh, a pleasure for me because I grew up there. That is my my hometown, my hometown university, uh, family who teach there. So it's really cool to get invited back to do this. I'm going to be giving a lecture. It's actually about a lot of the topics we discuss on the show about identity politics and trying to come up with a, a, a definition of it and a theory of it that is both, I think, more rigorous, but also more explanatory for where American politics is right now. It's going to be on February 7th, uh, again, in Irvine. Uh, you can check it out online. Just search Ezra Klein Peltison Lecture or UCI. Um, I'll try to put it in show notes here, too, so people can find it. Um, I hope it doesn't uh, totally fill up, but maybe some of you will get to go, and I'd certainly love to see some podcast listeners there. All right, the show today. I've got Kate Mann on the show, which I'm very excited about. She is a philosopher at Cornell University and the author of a quite remarkable book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. And this is a book that it's one of these books that I think has had unusual explanatory power in the past couple of years. It's contributed a lot of new terms and ideas to the discourse like empathy. But it's it's fundamentally a book about trying to define terms um, and particularly defining the term misogyny, not as a, a as a kind of individual hatred, but as a social environment. And what happens when you look at it that way? What happens when you take these terms, in this case, misogyny, but as you'll see in the conversation, others too, away from just being a property that individuals hold, a way they feel, and flip it and actually make it about the world that the people who are affected experience. What happens when you do that? I think it's very, very interesting and important and powerful way to think about this. This is also a conversation that relaxed into places that I did not expect it to go from um, uh, my recent meditation retreat, anxiety, Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. Um, Jordan Peterson tried to sue Kate Mann and actually Vox at one point. So we talk a little bit about that. Um, it, it, it has a lot of parts to it um, and is one of the ones I think I've enjoyed most and, and, and learned the most from. So very excited to bring it to you. Uh, thank you to Kate Mann for being here. Uh, as always, you can email me, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Again, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Here is Professor Kate Mann. Kate Mann, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks so much for having me. So we were just talking about this before we actually turned on the, the recording system, but your definition of misogyny and, and the way you restructure that in the book has really helped me think about not just misogyny itself, but but a lot of other things. Can you talk a little bit about the naive conception of misogyny and how it differs from from your conception? What 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 makes a naive conception naive? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there is this naive conception of misogyny that gets wheeled out um, quite frequently in public discourse and in individual arguments where it's this idea that misogyny is this deep, entrenched hatred of women very generally, or maybe even any and every woman. And the idea is that it's a kind of deep psychological property of individual agents who harbor this hatred in their hearts toward women generally. And so for various reasons, I want to challenge that definition, partly because I think it makes it virtually guaranteed that misogyny will be super rare in any environment, whereas I wanted a definition of misogyny where it would be more of an open question as to whether or not misogyny is instantiated. Uh, Because I think given women's traditional role as providers of loving, seamless service in a patriarchal culture, it will actually be comparatively rare that women will be hated across the board, as opposed to um, there being hostility directed towards women who don't toe that line. So so tell me what your definition is. What If, if yeah. you were writing the dif- dictionary, what would misogyny, <laughs> what would come after the word misogyny? Yeah. Interestingly, the the dictionary has been rewritten for the entry misogyny um, to broaden it from just hatred of women. But if I were rewriting that entry, which has been broadened in fairly standard ways to include things like contempt, dislike, hostility, as well as entrenched hatred, I actually would go in a different direction and think about misogyny as something women face rather than something that predominantly men feel. So I think of misogyny as primarily a a property of social systems or environments as a whole, where women tend to encounter um, hostility and hatred paradigmatically because they're not conforming to gendered roles and expectations. So I think there can also be hostility toward women who are conforming to patriarchal norms Um, But the paradigmatic instance will have to do with resentment, punishment, and a kind of attempt to police the behavior of a woman who's stepping out of line vis-a-vis the norms of um, a patriarchal system. So I want to, like, if you're listening, I want to stop here. And Occasionally, I come across an idea that is, like, really changes the way a lot of things look to me in the world. And, And this is one of those, because... We have a lot of ideas, misogyny, racism, um, you know, uh, this came up in my conversation with Bruce Friedrich around animal cruelty. I I was saying in that conversation that we almost need a new tense in our language for when we're talking about something not as a property, as you put it, of a psychological property of individual agents, but a a social property of, of broader systems to describe what we're often talking about. So, so to maybe draw this out a little bit, the handmaid's tale, uh, that is a world where you can imagine periods in that world where no one hates women at all, but it is still Absolutely. a very misogynistic world. No, exactly. And I mean, the entrenched hatred of, 
of any woman who you come across um, in the world will be super rare because I mean, women are socialized to please and serve. Like, why bite the hand that soothes and serves you? And this, to me, can you talk a little bit more about this idea of of being socialized to soothe and serve? Something you say later is when you discuss what patriarchy is, and I actually want to get the mm-hmm. sort of definitions also of patriarchy yeah. and sexism, you write that if patriarchy is anything here and now, it is this uneven gendered economy of giving and taking moral and social goods and services. W- what is that? Yeah, no. So that's a great question because what I do um, in my work on misogyny is I propose this super general definition of misogyny as kind of the law enforcement branch of patriarchy. And that's, um, at, you know, much as I said a moment ago, the idea is policing and enforcing the social roles um, that women are supposed to serve within patriarchy. And that immediately raises the question, so if we want to make substantive predictions about what misogyny will tend to do and who it will tend to target, we have to say what those patriarchal norms and expectations are. And one thing that I try to do is make a lot of room for that to differ across different times and places. So I think that we'll have to understand misogyny intersectionally. So in the contemporary American context, understanding how it intersects with white supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, classism, um, ableism, ageism, all of those will have to be understood such that the kinds of exact norms and expectations that misogyny is enforcing might look quite different in the here and now versus um, other times, places, cultures, etc. And I'm really, I tend to look predominantly at the US and Australia um, because I think of myself kind of as an analyst of culture and as really benefiting from having the kind of insider's perspective on my home country of Australia, public life therein, and also the US where I've been for now about 13 years. But in terms of The patriarchal roles and expectations that I I argue are operative in the US and Australia and similar kinds of milieu, I think of it as this uneven economy of giving and taking, where she is meant to give feminine-coded goods like sexual, social, emotional, and reproductive services to designated men, typically dominant men relative to her social position in ways that also bolster structures like white supremacy. And so on the flip side of that, he is allowed to take various masculine coded goods from her. And also there are, I think, a tacit norms that she's not meant to take away certain masculine coded goods from him. So she's not meant to rob him of prestige or respect or compete with him for various masculine-coded positions of, say, leadership and authority. And if she does, that, I think, is both um, what we would predict is a common locus, locus for misogynist aggression, and also we see empirically there are quite hefty penalties for women who do compete in, in head-to-head competition with men for, um, say, 
um, positions like the presidency. So, so we're gonna let's put a pin in the presidency. I want to come back to that. <laughs> sure, um, sure. I, I want to hold here for a couple of minutes because this is an idea that. Well, one of the things I was thinking about reading this is and preparing for this interview was that it helped me actually understand a lot of what the women in my life say or a lot of what I read um, women write on Twitter or about some of these debates. So the way you just explain that sort of uh, that's at the theory level, I'd like to bring it down to to the more day to day level. So in, under this theory, uh, let's talk about an interaction I think is pretty common. A woman is walking down the street. A man yells something that one may or may not read, but is at least being claimed to be a compliment towards her. You look mm-hmm. gorgeous today, sweetie. The woman keeps walking. And then the man says, oh, come on, you could at least smile back. This, and as I understand what you're saying, this is a moment where the woman is expected to, uh, under you know the, the gender roles we have, offer a kind of emotional validating care, right? Like, hey, yes, thank you. Like, I appreciate you noticing me. Um, and when that's not done, then it, all of a sudden, the, the sort of reaction, that smile, sweetie, oh, she's a bitch, like that's misogyny acting as an enforcer of that role. Is that a, a reasonable way to understand it? Yeah, I mean, I really like that example in the way it brings out one aspect of this I think that's important to highlight is a sense of entitlement on the part of some men, usually dominantly situated men, to her attention, consideration, to turn her head and have her respond. Although I think in the catcalling scenario, there's often a kind of double bind where there's not any way for a woman, generally speaking, to win in this scenario. It's almost like an extracurricular entitlement uh, <laughs> call, which sure. is destined to go in one one of two directions. So if she responds, she's a slut. And if she doesn't respond and kind of ignores him in some way that's, you know, the more usual course of action, at least in my experience, she's a bitch. So it's the slut-bitch dichotomy that gets imposed in this kind of, you know, miniature language game, to use the Wittgensteinian term, where it's like a bid for her attention where all parties are kind of aware that this is more a bit of protest than actually trying to get her to pay him mind. But paying him mind is very much the ostensible form that this takes. That makes total sense to me. But but to, to maybe draw it out to a better, a, a, a more, um, I don't want to say defensible, I'm not trying to defend, but a it, what we're talking about here is something that I think people hear in the conversation a lot is emotional labor. Yeah, right. And that I think, I was just thinking that that might be a nice example just in a workplace context, say, where, um, you know, emotional labor can mean a lot of different things and it can sometimes be defined very broadly. But just think about the work of keeping a conversation going and smooth and it running kind of seamlessly. So what I think we find both empirically and to some extent anecdotally, although we obviously have to be careful of that, is that women are doing a lot of the work of kind of maintaining his sense of face within a conversation, particularly if it's a dominantly situated man in a position of power, um, not questioning certain assumptions, learning that there are punitive consequences when the response is no as opposed to a yes and elaboration of his idea or suggestion, Um, certain ways in which we find asymmetries 
between how he is expected to respond to her and how she's expected to respond to him in by making encouraging noises rather than sometimes saying simply a flat no. And, and so the, the broad prediction the theory makes here is that you will see misogyny begin to activate uh, against sort of misogyny as this police enforcer of this uneven patriarchal or, you know, economy of, of emotional mm-hmm. exchange when women do not react with, I almost don't have exactly the right word here, but enough emotional grace solicitousness, and equanimity. grace, equanimity, smiling, yes. um, attention, graciousness for like the attention they're being shown, that it'll be those moments of stepping out of roles that will create a, a misogynistic backlash. Yes. And I should say it's not that I think that people will never encounter misogyny um, even when they're conforming to patriarchal roles and expectations because one of the things that patriarchy also does is it tends to lump women together. So if you're perceived as a certain type of woman, then even if you conform to various gender norms and expectations, then you can get punished anyway. And there's also the phenomenon of punching down behavior. There's the phenomenon of being misperceived. Um, But I do think that as a positive prediction, we'll tend to reliably get misogynist aggression um, when women violate social norms and expectations of that kind of, yeah, just as you put it, solicitousness and um, keeping things running smoothly, seamlessly, and without that kind of friction between persons that can be a problem but can also be a sign of progress if there's active disagreement, particularly when it's between people who haven't always been able to freely disagree with their social uh, superiors in an unequal society, with those who are marked as dominant, that can actually be a sign of social progress, I think, that we're getting a little more liberty to say no, or I disagree, or to challenge in ways that are important for Uh, civil discourse and human relations generally. So this made me think so much about Hillary Clinton Uh, and and, and the way, and I covered Hillary Clinton for years, to some degree still cover Hillary Clinton occasionally. And for decades now, the argument that played out around Clinton was that her detractors presented her as cold and uncaring. And remember that time she said, well, what was I supposed to do? Stay home and bake cookies. And her supporters, I mean, the counter argument to this was that no, in smaller settings, she was incredibly, even unusually warm and generous and loyal and caring. And she was a grandmother and a mother. And, you know, this always struck me at the time as a strange discourse, like very, very strange, actually. But in your framework, this decades long argument about Clinton is about whether she followed society's rules for women as she rose or whether she rose by violating society's rules for how women are supposed to act. Is that is that basically how how it looks under under your model? So it does. And um, I should say, you know, being a philosopher, what I, I like to do in my work is to generate fruitful hypotheses, which then people have to go out and test as sociologists and psychologists. And to some extent, that's already, um, you know, happened um, t- a little bit with, say, some of my work on on humanism. But I'm happy to be wrong, I should say, as someone who doesn't go and do 
testing in a direct way for these kinds of hypotheses, I'm often looking for evidence that can be supplied from my friends in, in social sciences or psych to see whether or not these hypotheses are confirmed or disconfirmed in particular ways. But I think that we had this massive social experiment or car crash, as the case may be, going on before our eyes in the run-up to the 2016 election, where you had these conditions which experimentally have been shown to be very fraught for women, where you have a man and a woman in a head-to-head competition for a masculine-coded authority position in the form of the presidency. And um, psychologists have shown that under those conditions, we tend to systematically rate women as either less competent or less trustworthy and likable, depending on whether or not you hold competence fixed in ways that people who are participating in the experiment simply couldn't deny. And if you do hold competence fixed such that a a man and a woman who are competing for a VP position in this company, you know, in this fictional example where they simply alternate their case files such that on average people receive the exact same information about each of the two made-up candidates, James and Andrea, have the exact same job files on average because they're alternated for each participant in the experiment. So on average, people get the same information about them. If you leave it slightly ambiguous as to who's more competent, about 84% of people will say that James is more competent than Andrea and should be vice president of this company. And if you say explicitly that they both are in the upper echelon of competence, so you hold fixed the competence such that people have no plausible reason to say that one is more competent than the other, people say that Andrea is less likable than James in, I think it was 86% of cases. And that's, again, with the same case file because it's been alternated on average. So this is purely the result of post hoc rationalization. And I think that those kinds of results, which are incredibly suggestive in um, the setting of a lab, we see that carrying across to the kind of situation that Clinton found herself in multiple times where she was going head to head with a man both for presidency, but also for the Democratic Party nomination. And I think we saw people scrambling to post hoc rationalize their reluctance to rate a woman above a man when they were going head to head. I remember this moment with Clinton. It came after I had just listened to a speech of hers. And in that speech, she had had this tendency to say, it was sort of part of the speech was listing her accomplishments. And she would say, I did X and I did Y and I did Z. And I remember listening to it and thinking, God, that falls on the ears badly. You know, it's just like me, 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 me. And then I happened like two days later to hear an interview with her. Um, And I hope I'm not misremembering the story, but this is basically how it went. And totally separately, she was discussing what she learned in politics, like how her political style changed. And she said that her advisors for a long time told her that early in politics, it she was giving bad speeches because she would never talk about I. She she was too uncomfortable saying that she did something. And she actually says, she's like, something I'm really proud of is that I taught myself to say I in the speeches. 
And I just thought, oh, well, that just sucks. (laughs) Talk about double binds. Um, Do you know the website McSweeney's? Yeah. So they had a headline the other day that I I think really relates to this conversation. And the headline is this. It says, I don't hate women candidates. I just hated (laughs) Hillary. And coincidentally, I'm starting to hate Elizabeth Warren. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's so funny. I put a link to that very McSweeney's piece in um, my last piece I wrote for um, New York Magazine. It was the first piece I wrote for The Cut. And I think they cut out the link in the end, but it was just so perfect because that's the thing. I think we we particularly double down and punish women candidates for offences that are against gender-coded norms and expectations. But I guess what really troubles me is there is no way if one has to compete with men in these head-to-head conflicts of conforming to gendered norms and expectations because the expectation really is of deference and stepping aside and supporting him or at least not taking the potential glory and position that's so masculine-coded away from him so there's no way to win in politics or in public life as a woman except by by somehow, and I think this would be very difficult too, convincing people to think differently about your candidacy and your voice and your presence in public life. I mean, the thing to say in response to the, is Hillary warm or isn't she, is it doesn't matter. And she's entitled to be fairly hard-nosed in how she thinks about certain policy issues or warmth is not a particularly relevant criterion, especially given the alternatives. So it might come into play if we were rating, you know, um, excellent, as it were, political apples for a degree of, you know, uh, juiciness and deliciousness. But as it is, we're rating apples against rotten oranges, so this should not be a discussion. <laughs> so, <laughs> at least in my my there, opinion, there's something in here that I think is really actionable, and and it can sound here like we're just talking about describing the world, but I'll, I'll put it in terms of me. One thing that I found useful about this definition is it gave me a quite different way to think about my own behavior and perceptions, which is to say this. So, you know, using the Hillary Clinton um, campaign as an example. There would be times when, you know, I don't know, somebody on cable would say like, oh, Hillary Clinton should smile more in in, in uh, speeches. But you pick whatever you want, right? There'd be an argument that some aspect of coverage of Clinton was misogynistic. And I think something that's very easy, you know, say for me to do, and I, I, I often agreed with this, but sometimes I didn't, and, and would be to say to myself, well, I'm not misog- Am I misogynistic, right? Like, am I a misogynist looking at Hillary Clinton, right? That's how I would interpret that. The sentence there is like, am I a misogynist looking at Hillary Clinton through my misogynist lens? When I I think the much more useful thing in in terms of the way you frame it is that the question I ask myself is, am I someone who, because of my, the expectations I have, is participating in a misogynistic system by looking at it this way? Exactly. And that's actually a much more like useful way to look at yourself and a less defensive way to look at yourself, I found. And it's why I think it's also applicable to these other things like, say, cruelty to animals or, you know, all kinds of things where, you know, if the question is, am I cruel? Am I X? It's often pretty easy to come up with the counterexamples to say no. I just, as as that McSweeney's headline says, 
I love plenty of women. I just hate Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris, and Elizabeth <laughs> Warren um, for, for no, you know, you know, just just that's how it goes. It's random. Um, but maybe the, re, you know, asking, are there things happening here that I've just been trained to get defensive about or to see as a violation of, um, the, you know, the way a, a woman should act? But of course, like given that no woman has been president, probably always running for presidency or violations of women of ways women should act um, societally. I, I just found that to be a much more useful way of thinking about that question. Well, I'm I'm so glad to hear that because I've thought of it as as something we can all ask ourselves. I mean, I started to ask myself that question relentlessly. How might I be perpetuating and and participating in misogynistic social practices, despite my good intentions, despite my lifelong feminism? I mean, being very progressive and having elements that morally you can improve in yourself, not by purifying your soul, but just by saying, okay, I find her kind of not that likable. So what? It's the kind of almost analogous to a visual illusion. It's the kind of moral illusion that someone like me in late stage capitalism, who's been very subject to misogynistic social forces, would naturally tend to channel. So maybe I should kind of distrust my distrust or question my dislike. And once I adopted that perspective and was more suspicious of my own post hoc rationalization in all likelihood of why this candidate was terrible or why this candidate was so much better, I found myself realizing lots of gaps in my information that I could fill in with facts or with just open questions to look out for next time in terms of what I wanted to see from a candidate or what I cared about, which of course will differ and ought to differ for different individuals. But I feel like maybe some of these forms of self-criticism can get us a little bit away from the kind of groupthink that is very good at channeling disgust-based forms of prejudice that are basically, they remind me a little bit of the negative reaction people apparently have to people standing the wrong way inside an elevator. So people freak out at this tiny violation of social norms and tend to get very almost upset, almost disgusted at these social norm violations of just facing the wrong way. And if that's the case, even though there's no particularly good reason to stand facing um, outwards rather than inwards in an elevator, it should just make us really question some of our gut reactions or basic inchoate instincts that we may be able to list reasons as to why we like this person or not that person. But again, like to be able to step back and say, I'm a person who's subject to all of these messy social forces. And whether I'm a man, woman, non-binary for that matter, whether I'm politically progressive or more conservative, whatever, I'm probably capable of getting the wrong idea because clarifying what one actually thinks as opposed to what one's been kind of um, inculcated to believe, that's, that's the work of a lifetime. It's a, I mean, it's an exciting challenge, but it's also a daunting one. Can I tell you a funny story about this? Yeah, um, please. I just uh, last week actually returned from my first silent meditation retreat. 
oh, which wow. is something That's I've so wanted cool. to do forever and um, yeah. it's something I'll probably explore on this podcast more in the future. But one of the things about that, there, so I was there and there were 90 other people there. It was a big, it was a big silent meditation party. And one of the things when you're just wandering around silently with 90 other people for five days is you see people a lot, but you have extraordinarily little information about them. All you have is stuff along the lines of did they stru- did they stand the wrong way in the elevator, which is to say, <laughs> you know, were they breathing loudly when they meditated <laughs> near you or like what mm-hmm. kinds of what sweatshirt are they wearing? Right. You know, like what what clothing are they wearing, which like they're wearing to just be comfortable and it's cold and it's rainy. But like what and something that's really interesting to that, that I noticed in myself sometimes is that. I would develop negative impressions of people based on absolutely no information at all. I'd be like, I don't like that yes. sweatshirt. And I like, I don't like that person. <laughs> <laughs> they just have an aspect to yeah, their... Yeah, there's something about them. And Resting meditation bitch face. <laughs> Surely a thing. <laughs> absolutely. I, I have that one really badly. Um, but, and then you realize like, this is happening to me all the time, right? I just like, here it looks ridiculous. I'm like, well, that's absurd. You know, like... This person is is at this meditation. The fact that they're all decked out in sports clothing like doesn't tell you anything about them. Clearly, they're not what your associations are with somebody who just like is really into championship, you know, soccer or whatever. Um, that's <laughs> totally. a better made up example. I'm not actually calling anybody out here, but it was this recognition that I'm doing this all the time. Like I yes, am, I am wandering around exactly. the world, like telling stories about people to myself, and then looking for confirming evidence or even just not looking for confirming evidence, just not liking them from here on out. And if that's true with small things like I don't like your pants, how true is it with the deeply ingrained roles we're taught to play and we're taught that others are supposed to be playing around us? I I loved what you just said a moment ago, which is clarifying what we really think and what we're being told to think or socialized to think is a work of a lifetime. I think people don't like hearing that kind of thing, but it really is. It's really like thinking independently and noticing the way your brain is trying to categorize people and how fast it's doing that and then how powerfully you are rationalizing that project is really, um, it's really, it is the work of a lifetime. Yeah. And especially because if you even add to that, imagine you had various social forces that were making you feel a little bit guilty or ashamed or weird if you thought about revising a negative judgment of someone. And, you know, you had maybe vomit emojis on Facebook that kick in whenever <laughs> you say, you know, maybe thinking out loud, that person in the in the soccer sweater for a team, I, I don't know how sports ball, ball works exactly, but, you know, that soccer team sweater guy, um, maybe they're not so bad or maybe I've you know, shouldn't think so much about these narratives that quickly grow up around people um, based on very, very scanty evidence. I just, I wonder what, um, if we think about even extending the analogy to all of your friends piling on and saying, oh, no, no, the soccer person is a jerk on the basis of similarly scanty impressions. And then you get these kind of disgust-based mechanisms cropping up where you feel a little bit weird or a little bit ashamed, every time that person comes up in conversation, you feel like you can't rush to their defense and you certainly can't support them, which is a different proposition. So you can get snowball effects for these dubious social processes that, you know, it would be nice if they didn't exist, but I think the evidence is pretty strong that we are post hoc rationalizers of these very fleeting 
negative um, impressions based on small violations of social norms that could be bad social norms that ought to be violated. My, uh, I don't want to use his McSweeney's piece as like the Rosetta Stone for our whole conversation. <laughs> but it's so good. But there's this paragraph in it. <laughs> it can be. It says, my hatred for Hillary wasn't diabolical. Never bought into the whole Pizzagate thing or the whole <laughs> Uranium One thing or the whole spirit cooking. She drinks blood infused pedestal thing. And I never once believed she was a devil. I would just see those posts and be like, huh. If people believe that stuff about her, she must really be terrible. <laughs> Just like we are all we are all like that, right? I'm using Clinton as an example because she is, I think, the highest profile example of this playing out in mm-hmm. this profound way. One of the pieces that I'm actually most proud of is I, I spent um, about two or three months during the primary working on a profile of Clinton. And the reason I was working on it was that I would like there was this Clinton people would tell me there was right that who had worked with her or worked for her. And then this Clinton that I would see on the campaign trail, which honestly like did not impress me much. Um, and I often had, I don't want to say a negative reaction because I didn't quite, but you know, I didn't, it just, how this person could be so glowingly spoken of by those who had worked with her, the two things didn't match for me. And the mm. real thing I came away from after talking to her, people who worked with her at literally every point in her career on both sides of the aisle was that our expectations for campaigning are just incredibly, incredibly powerfully gendered. And the things that she is good at, the kind of coalitional forms of leadership, she is a very, in reality, right, not like on TV, in reality, she has very feminine coded leadership styles and she's very, very effective at them. She's very good at building coalitions, very good at working with people, very good at bringing people together, very good at offering care even to people who've been very unkind to her. Like she's able to do things that really speak to what you actually need to do to get work done in, in, in Congress or, or elsewhere. But when it comes to um, the way we actually judge a lot of these candidates, and I'm not saying there aren't some genuine problems with her or policies or politics. I'm not exempting her from criticism. But this idea that, um, I don't know, a Joe Biden or even a Donald Trump who is very natural in front of a rally of 15,000 people. But I mean, nobody is less natural in like a human interactions than Donald Trump. The, yeah, the way in which right. that is considered He's like- freakishly a, unnatural. Right. The way that is considered authentic and unnatural versus like her actually much more normal collection of like likes actual people, does not like being in front of crowds of 42,000 people. It, what we were like, what it, what it was all filtering through was a lot of like expectations I didn't even realize before doing that work that I had. I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the huge problems here is that women are often very good at doing the, um, you know, extending interpersonal care, even while giving addresses or lectures or speeches, but it doesn't scale up very easily to large crowds. So one sort of striking finding for an adjacent domain of professors being evaluated is that women tend to do Um, increasingly worse on student evals as the size of their classes increases. And it seems really related, and this is partly speculative, but another thing that we know is that women tend to be downgraded on rate my professor evaluations for different reasons than male professors. We just don't have, I think, enough data on non-binary professors, so apologies for omitting that. But for women not being empathetic, caring, showing specialized attention for each and every student, those were the kinds of qualities that got called out. And that suggests to me that there is this expectation that's quite powerful that then gets punished when it's not 
either capable of being instantiated or when a particular woman just doesn't have that kind of way of relating to students. Maybe she's more of a funny professor or um, a professor who just does amazing proofs on the board and people learn a lot by just like witnessing her inaction as a thinker. Whatever it is, women tend to get, yeah, really marked down as compared to men for being not um, specialist carers of each and every student. So I'd like to talk about um, how this, what we're calling here the patriarchy, right, this system of uneven kind of emotional exchange interacts with social roles for men. Because here's what I think, not the objection to the idea that patriarchy is or to, to maybe the it's not an objection to this set of assumptions, but it's an objection to the idea that social roles act with particular force or cruelty on women. And I think you mm-hmm. see this very much on the men's rights side. And, and you hear this very much in the work of Jordan Peterson and others. And it, it goes, I think, like this. Yes, it's true that women, and maybe this is biological or maybe it's social, are expected to do more providing of care and compassion and emotional support and nurturing. But men also have these same kinds of roles acting on them. They're expected to offer protection, resources. They do more dangerous and Mm -hmm. dirty and violent jobs. They put themselves at risk for the family. Like, you know, they're out there hunting. And when they fail in that, they are subject to the same kind of sanction as women, that they're not they're mm-hmm. not making out any better. They're seen as weak. They're made fun of. They're um, they don't um, you know, they don't end up with uh, partners and they don't end up with that kind of love. And in fact, like, you know, I think a lot of men's rights worlds and incels worlds and, and others are based on this resentment that um you know, they feel that, I mean, they obviously feel entitled to it, but this feeling that actually women hold all the power by choosing and that they choose in part these men who, you know, win at these characteristics, win at the success game or at the money game or at the kind of leadership in a room game. And so, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so that there's the this other, yeah. And this resentment it's that we, we don't. It's a sin of omission by no one in particular. Exactly. And so that. That it's not just that we live in a patriarchy, but that, I mean, we live in, uh, I'm sorry, I actually don't know the the reverse word, a, a, a matriarchy? Yes, it must just be a matriarchy <laughs> um, simultaneously. I'm curious how you think about that objection. Yeah, I mean, so one way you could think about it is that, you know, it's controversial whether patriarchy oppresses some men as such or whether it merely harms them. But I think it should be uncontroversial that there are harms to boys and men associated with patriarchy. So this isn't meant to be a system of domination and subordination where boys and men necessarily get a particularly good deal out of this. Um, I think maybe a small proportion do, and we shouldn't decide a priori whether or not that's so much as possible. But I think a lot of boys and men will lose out in ways that are important to think about from the perspective of feminism and egalitarian social progress. I mean, I haven't been so inclined to think about those particular mechanisms in my own work because I do think that there is a tendency as a woman, even as a feminist, to reorient moral concern towards boys and men. And so methodologically, what I've kind of done in my book and my recent research is thinking that the ways in which boys and men are policed are really important, but they're an important problem that other researchers can tackle. 
because my focus has been relentlessly on girls and women. And I want to leave it to other researchers to think about boys, men, non-binary folks, just because I, I worry that otherwise problems for girls and women will tend to go under the radar. But that's not to say that problems for boys and men, because of patriarchal forces, they can certainly exist. I will say there are some, there's some evidence that suggests that, say, so one thing often that comes up when we start to get into the actual um, concrete details of this is, well, men are expected to be breadwinners. And I will say there's some evidence that that expectation has been waning. So currently in the US, if you look at male-female um, households, uh, a third of women earn as much or more than a male partner. And so it's still possible that there are policing and um, enforcement mechanisms operating on men in those positions, but they're not being fully effective. Similarly, there's often a you know the line that, well, patriarchy hurts men because boys aren't allowed to cry. And actually, a big meta-analysis recently revealed that boys and girls don't differ a whole lot in terms of either amount or um, valence of emotional expression. And so they question this uh, a supposed truth that boys don't cry or aren't allowed to cry in the first paragraph of that really interesting meta-analysis, uh, this big study of the, the evidence of this by saying, look, you know, maybe there's a norm in place that boys shouldn't cry, but if so, it's not very potent because boys and girls tend to display similar levels of emotion. The main difference that emerges in early adolescence is boys show more anger, girls show more contempt when it comes to negative emotion, which would make sense if we don't really allow girls to express anger and if we deem boys at least tacitly to be entitled to express their anger. And so this is all to say there can be real problems for boys and men because of patriarchy, but I also think we should sometimes be a little bit careful of assuming too quickly that there are still strong breadwinning norms or still strong norms saying that boys shouldn't express emotion. When you actually go look at the empirical evidence, it looks a little unclear whether that's still the case. One thing that, that makes me think of um, that the breadwinner numbers you're talking about there is that this feels to me like a place where you really do see the way we have realities that are sometimes fine and then social norms that warp them into places of, of discontent. Mm -hmm. I've seen a number of studies that show that um, men are quite unhappy uh, on average if their wife out earns them. And women on average are not unhappy if, if their partner out earns them. Now, you would think just from an economic standpoint, like if you've managed to marry somebody who's bringing in more money, <laughs> like that is great. Like congratulations to you. Like good, like <laughs> pat yourself on the back. But instead we have this um, dimension that actually makes it um, painful. And, and I've seen studies that actually it changes the rate of job uptake when um, men are unemployed because like for, for their partner, it can actually make the home life more unstable if like they they then start advancing in their careers. And, and it's a place where uh, it just seems to me to hurt everyone, right? There's, there's this line that, uh, that I like a lot, that there is what's happening and there's your relationship to what's happening and those two things are different. And I feel like something that, that you're getting at here, which is true in a lot of places in society, is that sometimes what's happening is okay, um, but our relationship to it can be really bad. Yeah, I think that's that's really on point. So one thing that we, that further breakdown of the numbers seems to reveal is that 
men have lower expectations of female partners than women have of themselves with respect to earning. So men and women both seem to um, expect in roughly equal number that men being a good provider is an important part of being a good partner. And we see that the degree to which that's true tends to track things like age, degree of education, but it's about even gendered-wise. But it does seem like men have lower expectations of women than women have of women to be good earners in a relationship. So that points to one sort of small interesting asymmetry and with it this possibility that men may be themselves the enforcers of patriarchal norms and expectations which are tough for men. So one thing we should always ask is, you know, who's doing the policing and enforcing? So we know when it comes to misogyny that And this is, you know, it's a hard thing to say. And part of why my methodology has um, really been digging into these truths and trying to say them as clearly as possible is that they're, you know, if I say this to you now, I'll get a couple of, you know, well, let's say at a minimum, very angry emails about it. Everybody who listens to the show is very nice. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Well, um, Maybe this will be the pleasant exception to the the general rule, which is if I just say on Twitter or or in a fairly public context, men perform over 99% of strangulation. And that's usually female victims, but not always. It's also children, both male and female, and occasionally adult male victims. But it looks like that enforcement and domination mechanism, according to experts on domestic violence, That's mostly down to men's behavior, not anyone else's. And similarly, I think there's some evidence that there is, you know, policing and enforcing of masculine social roles where even if that doesn't turn out to be successful in actually predicting how much they'll be conformed to. But often that's men rather than women having expectations that are now unrealistic and also not grounded in normative reality why shouldn't partners earn roughly proportionate to, you know, just what the chances are of having a lucrative career in whatever industry each partner is in? Why should it be painful that a woman out-earns a male partner? How odd, normatively. How natural in terms of, you know, it, it makes perfect sense socially speaking and in historical terms, but morally, normatively, that should be something that is neither here nor there, rationally. And so I think, you know, it comes back a little bit to this idea of getting our visceral, emotional, and um, moral responses more in line with actual reality, normative and otherwise, by sometimes saying, yeah, I feel really cut up about this, or it's really painful. And it would feel painful, and I'm going to discount that. Because those feelings of pain aren't tracking anything that really matters. It's tracking a silly, unwarranted, unjust expectation that men should out-earn women or something like that. Um, So just being able to sit with those feelings of resentment or indignation or pain or humiliation or dislike and just, like, not reacting to them. That's why some people have rightly pointed to various ways in which this suggests a sort of some form of um, Buddhist ethics where we don't, we don't trust 
those sorts of feelings of yeah. That's so pain funny because as you were saying, I was going to say, man, when you come back from a meditation retreat, everything sounds like Buddhist practice <laughs> to you. Well, <laughs> when you're like just this... sit with your bad emotions, but <laughs> <laughs> I I really think this is I've had you know excellent. So I don't do Buddhist ethics yet, at least. Um, unfortunately, my training is not in that. But I've had people who are trained in that area say this this does sound very Buddhist. And yeah, what I've been able to glean, I think, reflects that. Just not trusting those feelings and letting them fade and not regarding them as good evidence that something is wrong in your world. Maybe it's actually something that's gone right. You know, there's a line um, you hear a lot in sort of Buddhist writing and talking and bumper stickers, basically, which is don't believe everything you think, which yes. I always like. Um, well, as an anxious person, I, there's no way I could have navigated the world in even the muddled way that I've managed to scrape together a life. You know, it, not to say I'm, I'm doing that great, but in as much as I'm functioning, that's kind of what I had to learn. And I think maybe this is a a small advantage of living with a lot of anxiety, you realize you just have to discount a lot of what your brain brings up and rationalizes to kind of glom onto non-problems in order to justify underlying feelings that probably have some kind of biological basis, you know, the fight, fight or freeze response is activated. And you have to think, okay, I'll just sit with whatever my brain turns up to justify my racing heart rate and let it go. I did not quite expect to go down this road in this particular conversation, but, you know, something that um, I had a really interesting experience um, when I was on the retreat that I've been mulling over a lot since, which is, like you, I have a lot of anxiety. And particularly the way that what I think of as my anxiety manifests is a lot of obsessive thinking. And I tend to play through um, to some degree things I'm upset about, but much more it's like visualizing things that I might have to do, um, sort of like ways things could go bad in the future and how I would respond. And, you know, you can do two things, I think, sort of without thinking about it with thoughts. One is you can believe them, right? You know, I think this and therefore it's true. Like, I think people respond to me this way and so they will. And the other, which is more common for me, is you can resist them, right? Like this kind of like constant, like in your brain, like shut up, just like stop it. And, you know, I was talking to one of the, the the teachers there about this and they said to me, you know, it sounds like you really identify with that kind of shut up part of your own mind, you know, the, the sort of internal controller. And I was like, yeah, like this this part that's doing this obsessive thinking, it doesn't feel like part of me. It feels like just like like a rogue sub agency in my internal corporation that is doing this work that I can't get it to stop wasting yes. organizational resources on. <laughs> Yeah, you know, maybe you want to maybe stop that that. resonates, maybe stop trying that. And so I like went back to my cushion and as opposed to trying to resist it or trying to believe it, I just like tried to identify with it. Like, what is it doing there? Like, why is it doing this? And and it was a kind of profound moment for me where I was like, oh, it's trying to prepare me for things. There's a part of me that is constantly preparing for things that might happen. And that part of me has actually often been very useful. It often has prepared me for things that did happen. Like I have this kind of like, you know, like constant like pre-visualization of things that could go in, in in different negative ways. And it's not always good, but but it at least serves a role and a purpose. And I think that's a little bit um, 
uh, applicable to this conversation, or maybe it is. Maybe this is an extremely like just like post retreat no, no, dumb thing to be talking about. No, it but, really resonates actually. But maybe you know it's worth sitting. I, I think about this a lot when I have instant reactions to articles I don't like. Like, what role is that reaction playing for me? And like sometimes it is playing a role, but the role is negative, right? Or it's playing a role, and the role is social. You know, and I think that's a little bit of what we're talking about here. It's playing like maybe you see this, maybe like, why doesn't Hillary Clinton smile more? And instead of like saying, stop being a misogynist or, hey, she really doesn't smile enough. She's terrible. It's like, what role is that feeling playing? Yes, I love that way of thinking about it. It actually reminds me of the origin of my book in a way, which I mean, this is I hope it isn't getting off track. We are I, we are well. We can't we can hardly <laughs> even see the path. Like let's let's sit with it. <laughs> no, that I like that. I like the wandering. I because the reason why I, I wrote this book in a way is I just started teaching at Cornell. It was 2013 and I was 30. It was my first professor gig. You know, I'd done a little bit of undergraduate teaching just as a TA, but I was panicked. Panicked in a way that was very unfamiliar because I got through grad school without all that much anxiety. I mean, I, I had always levels of it that were a concern, but it, w- it felt kind of well-managed. And then when I got to the position of being a professor, I just clean kind of panicked in ways that really threw me for a loop, not just because it made it hard to teach, but because it made it, um, because they didn't really make sense to me. And it came down, you know, after I I saw a therapist for a while and tried to get on top of it. But I think it came down to this expectation that if I stepped into an authority role where I was the professor, that I just didn't look or resemble the part at all. So my dad is a professor and he has professor gravitas. And, you know, I don't. Like, I'm a foot shorter than him and I just... I felt like I was trying to dress up as a professor by wearing a blazer, and then I, I I couldn't kind of get into it. I loved doing it, and I wasn't, the funny thing, I wasn't even intellectually um, all that anxious about not knowing my stuff, or because I'd, I'd worked so hard, I actually felt relatively okay that if I could communicate effectively what I knew or you know, the various dialectics and philosophy that I was responsible for teaching, I thought it would be okay. But I thought I just wouldn't be heard as a professor. And so I I kind of almost overcorrected by being incredibly casual with students and not, you know, I would not let them call me Professor Mann. I would, you know, I still say students are always welcome to call me Kate and I don't like standing on ceremony, but I would be so uncomfortable. I didn't feel like I should have an office I didn't feel entitled to have an office, even though as a tenure-track assistant professor in my first job, of course I was entitled to an office. But I felt silly sitting in my office. But what helped me was realizing, A, nothing was going to go that wrong because I was actually in a service position. So my natural manner in the classroom means that for better or worse, you know, and this really took me, it came as a complete shock. Students actually liked me and were very sweet to me. And I've had the loveliest time teaching. It's been a healing experience, really, because nothing all that bad has happened thus far. But then it wasn't that I was having some incredibly irrational fear. If I changed the dials of the social 
self-presentation just a little bit. Like that same year, or I think it was now 2014, I wrote my first piece of so-called public philosophy, my first piece for the Times, and I got the nastiest emails that, you know, some of them I think anyone gets if they write on the internet, I'm sure you can confirm that, but some of them were really distinctively gendered, saying I was a a silly schoolgirl whose face looked so young you could tell I'd just never had a tough life experience, which, you know, for what it's worth, isn't true. But this kind of the immense aggression, you know, people were saying, you know, I was sent death threats, rape threats. People said I should have, you know, urine poured all over me just to like kind of baptize me in this disgusting. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, there was, I was fearing something that wouldn't happen if I taught, but could easily happen and does happen when I write. When I wrote about white male resentment after Ferguson, And this idea that I deeply believe in that, look, we shouldn't expect equality will come as good news to dominant group members. For white men in the position of a Darren Wilson um, facing Michael Brown, we should not expect them to be behaving well in all of these contexts because there is an enormous amount of resentment directed against people of color and white women for just being human and for being political and for being activists or for being, in the case of Michael Brown, a teenage boy who was kind of throwing his weight around a little bit, you know, because he felt good having just graduated high school and he was like having a good time by all reports, you know, and that sort of like show of just simple um, humanity, I think, can be so resented rather than being so rather than it being the sort of solution to show your humanity or that people realize you're fully human it can be precisely the problem when you exhibit your humanity by walking around and being in the world and writing and talking and teaching or singing dancing that's when people can go nuts if you're not actually supposed to be one of the people who does that and so anyway, does that make sense it that does, I had this yeah. sort of, like, my anxiety wasn't tracking what would happen, but it was tracking a nearby possible world, which I, in fact, needed to be in touch with in order to be able to write ever, you know, that first time and ever again, that um, people would not be happy with a, you know, youngish looking woman with a professor byline saying, yeah, white men can be very resentful. One of the things you make me think about when you say that is it's interesting what emotions are normalized in the public sphere and for whom. Yeah. Because some really are. Um, you know, I used to be a lot angrier on the Internet, uh, which is I don't, I don't even it's not that I was an angry person. It's more that I was motivated by a kind of self-righteousness. Like uh, hmm. like my my basically my politics were if you've ever seen that XKCD cartoon, the like there's someone wrong on the Internet. <laughs> You know, like those are my politics, basically, like someone was wrong on the Internet and I was right and I was going to tell them how it was. And if I did that enough times, I was going to fix American politics. Totally, totally. And one thing I would say is that that was really rewarded. Um, I think that anger, particularly from men, is like really rewarded on Twitter, particularly, but also in blogs um, to some degree in columns. I I think that there there are a lot of modes of discourse that are are really uh, 
that are normalized. And then there are a bunch that aren't. I mean, something that I've been trying to do on this podcast in the past couple of years and, and in my work more broadly, I mean, the reason I say on the podcast, you know, I have anxiety, which is the kind of thing that I wouldn't have said, you know, seven or eight years ago, is actually that I've become pretty disillusioned with that someone is wrong on the internet style of politics. I think that, you know, if what you want to do is be persuasive and if what you want to do is create openness in people to and openness in yourself to, to what you're hearing and what they're hearing, you have to do a lot of work to lower everybody's defenses, again, including your own before you get there. Like my stu- like my study of persuasion has persuaded me that persuasion is almost impossible. But there's a lot acting on us at all times to just be to be in a place where we're like very well defended and fortified against those emails. I think about, you know, with those kinds of emails, um, I have this tendency sometimes where I will like look at my email and I will notice that I'm basically like scanning nice emails to get to the bad ones. You know, there's something about like my psyche that is, well, that is more interested, you know, and more like anticipatory and upset about the bad than than I ever am about the good. And uh, than I ever am happy about the good. And I don't know, there's something there in what we have taught people to display and why, you know, and why it feels safe to us to display it that I think is really interesting. And I think it goes to some of this larger conversation we're having, which is I think it's really um, disorienting to fully recognize how much programming that is not really under your control and potentially not even visible to you at all is operating on what you think of as you all of the time. Some of yeah, that programming absolutely. is social. Some of that programming is evolutionary. Some of that programming is, you know, did you have lunch? But it's <laughs> happening all the time. And and we have this kind of concept like I did X or I thought Y when, you know, the question of like which part of that was what you think of as you is pretty small and ill-defined. And I think people get very, particularly in these socially charged areas like misogyny or race or religion or some of these, people get very defensive about what it means to be pointing out that programming and what is being said about them when that pointing when that programming is pointed out. But if you really believe in it happening on you all the time, it's not that it's not that threatening. It's not shameful. I wish we could have a kind of national and even broader than that reckoning with shame. I think a lot about the role of shame in some of these conversations where one of the reasons I wanted to shift from an individual and psychologistic conception of misogyny to something focused on the victims and targets is if I could make one thing the case, if I could change one thing about how we think and talk about misogyny, it would be reducing the threat of shame as well as guilt when the possibility of channeling misogynistic social forces or perpetuating them, participating in them, entered the discourse. If I could get people to be less shame-prone and, as a result, less defensive and to be capable of more um, solidarity with others in thinking, so the idea that we're thinking through something together rather than running to kind of either self-isolate or aggressively defend against the specter of shame, I think it would be a much better discourse and, you know, maybe even, I say cautiously and from a position of great temperamental pessimism, maybe even a better world. Like, I think about what is so different in the classroom where my students are warm with each other and me and we, you know, I emphasize 
things like feeling free to disagree and being capable of backtracking. And I try to model making mistakes and then saying, scratch that, let's go back, let me try to put that more clearly. Or I used to think this, here's why I've changed my mind, without a sense that that's shameful, but rather that it's interesting philosophically and potentially morally. And because I can manage that in my own classrooms, I both think it makes for an environment where there are, are fruitful disagreements and there is pushback against me as a sort of, you know, pretty small authority figure, but I do have authority in the context of that room. And in some ways, um, I ought to, even though it's uncomfortable for me to occupy that position. And if public discourse was less prone to dissolve into both defenses against shame and shame-based explosive reactions, which are very differentially distributed in the population in terms of who is allowed to display what and when. I think, yeah, we would both have a discourse that was better, but also it would be a significant progress towards equality in that context. I love that you brought up shame here um, because it actually seems to me that, that if I were to pick an emotion that is driving our politics right now, I think that emotion is shame. Um, and you have uh, and I, I don't want to bring us in some ways, I don't want to bring us too much back on a literal path. But we've talked a lot about Hillary Clinton and not that much about Donald Trump. You have this lovely line in the book where you say Trump's was a face of shame turned inside out. It's exterior wall, as it were. Shame refused with fury substituted since he and his ilk are accustomed to being treated with the greatest respect. And that way, a lot of our politics right now feel to me like the backlash to shame. Like, how dare you make me feel that way? And if you make me feel that way, like, well, <laughs> like, here's what I'm going to do to you. Yeah, screw you, it, I, um, if I can say that. Yeah, I mean, to me, the first thing I noticed about Trump politically was he is utterly shameless. You cannot shame him, and thus it's very difficult to smear him, be that a good thing or a bad thing. He is extremely difficult to take down because one of the fascinating things about watching him as a political actor is, you know how most of us, if we, if we say something a bit wrong or contradict ourselves in some way, you know, the face of shame will be immediately visible. And even watching him to the very small degree that I, you know, can get into, um, you know, the kind of just basic bodily empathy that makes you cringe when someone says something stupid or self-contradictory or ignorant. He is amazingly free from those reactions that I go to mirror, but they're absent in his performance. And because it is both anger and the attempt to humiliate others that gets substituted for what would ordinarily be shame-based reactions to his own flaws, he's this amazingly liberatory figure to folks who feel mired in shame because he's like a possibility proof that you can live shamelessly and free from shame and its corrosive effects in others' eyes. Now, I'm not saying we should aim to go shame-free, but I do think that one lesson for me as a someone who thinks of myself as, you know, very progressive and leftist is what are the discourses that have sprung up such that people are running from them and running from the prospect of shame? And how should we respond to the fact 
that those discourses either are or are perceived as highly shaming in ways that for people who feel deprivation mindset with respect to social respect, who feel, in other words, that they don't get enough respect, they're constantly on the verge of being shamed or are already in that kind of zone as the default. What are we offering to them in as much as we want to consistently with our values? And I'm, I'm not sure that we've really figured that out. I'm not sure if this is right, and I'm I'm just thinking about it as you say that. But there's something about that that feels to me like it helps frame the quote-unquote free speech debate we mm-hmm. keep having in an interesting way. So one of my frustrations about yeah. that conversation is that I often look at what people are saying, and I think this actually is not an abridgment of freedom of speech at all. You're upset about Twitter mobs or you're upset about people Mm -hmm. criticizing you or people protesting you or like freedom of speech is when, and and it happens all the time, um, you know, you get fired for trying to speak about organizing a union at your workplace. Like then your speech is quite unfree or like currently there's, (laughs) I was talking about this with Bruce Friedrich, but you know, there's an effort in, in some states to not let you put the word meat, like the the state will like put you in jail if you put the word meat on a veggie burger. And like sometimes like the state really does abridge freedom of speech. Um, but we, I think, are having a conversation, which is a real one, but is getting confused by the terminology, which is like the freedom to speak without shame, the freedom to speak without being shamed. And I, I, I always want to be careful because I actually think in a funny way, the very same people who have gotten very down on the idea of safe spaces I think the desire to have safe spaces in which to speak is really deep. And it's not a, it's not something to laugh at. I'm not saying it's never been taken too far on a college campus. But the idea that we want to feel safe while we are speaking is very, like it runs very core. And I do think that um, it, it's one telling about how strong the feeling of shame is, that it can feel like an abridgment of freedom. Like the specter of shame can feel like we are no longer free. Yeah. And in a way, what people mean is we're no longer free in the sense that we're no longer free to relate to others because shame is the most isolating emotion. So it severs the sight lines is how I think of it. It makes us want to either look down or in the words of Eric Erickson, it makes us want to destroy the eyes of the other, which I find kind of an unfamiliar alien sentiment, but is reportedly very common when the shame comes with a sense of entitlement to, yeah, cut off the other as a source of that social reflection that is the basis for shame. And so I think like a lot of what we're seeing is people who, you're right, it's not about freedom of speech in the technical sense at all. That's a complete misnomer. They really want to have shame-free speech and react vitriolically to the idea of a safe space in a college campus or wherever because the world was hitherto their safe space and it's feeling less safe to speak within without the prospect of shame. Like what is it that, say, a Jordan Peterson, what is his great objection to the idea of using someone's preferred pronouns if they say if they're trans or genderqueer or non-binary? Well, I think what he objects to and has almost said in a kind of um, supposed gotcha moment was he feels, he put it as he feels offended by getting things wrong. But what I think he really means is he feels ashamed when he's corrected 
and when these acts of not political correctness but political correction have these moments where you have to, and here I think, you know, we shouldn't revise um, the shaming practice so much as we should get better at sitting with our feelings of shame, where suppose we do have a friend who's using a different set of pronouns than we were accustomed to using. Suppose we make a mistake. I think it's correct that we should feel just a moment of shame that says, okay, you did something that socially is going to affect that relationship, and then we try again and try to do better in a way that's conscientious moving forward. So, yeah, oh, sorry, just so the thought is just as well as altering the discourse is to be less shame-prone, we should also make ourselves more shame-proof in the sense not of not having experiences of shame, but of, yeah, having a more, if you'd like, um, Buddhist response where we can sit with shame and not wither. Peterson is an interesting character in all this. Um, so to, I feel like his views on pronouns are at this point, it's like so hard to tell between the different things that have been said, like what it actually is, like whether or not he's upset about the the idea that he would be forced to say something he doesn't want to say, potentially by the state, but not only by the state, possibly just by mm-hmm. shaming practices. But also like on the other side, um, you know, there's a like an like an interesting backstory to this that, that I think is worth bringing up here, which is um, some number of months ago, Sean Elling, who's the Vox interview uh writer. Um, he had reached out to Peterson for an interview a couple of times. Peterson had said, no, you had written an interesting um, review of Peterson's book, I think for the London Review of Books, if I'm not. Uh, the TLS, yeah. The, liter- the, the Times Literary Supplement, Times I'm Literary sorry. Times Literary Supplement. And then he did an interview with you about Peterson. And, you know, putting even aside, I thought your, I thought the criticisms you made of him were, were, were quite um, thoughtful. But Peterson sent a cease and desist letter to you, to Vox, and to Cornell, which I just thought was an interesting insight into the way, the, the fact that whatever he is saying when, by free speech is not what I think people usually mean when they hear that term. Like actually trying to employ the state. I mean, this was a ridiculous idea of a lawsuit, so it never went anywhere. Threatening to sue me for defamation, <laughs> threatening to sue Cornell, threatening to sue you. I, I'm not sure. Did you actually get that email? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, we we, yeah. we have like actual lawyers who looked at this and like laughed. <laughs> Because um, it yeah. was a very like being criticized for your ideas in public by somebody who's read your ideas and is actually like trying to engage with you. And if you read that interview, it's quite um, in many ways gentle. Uh, it, it's just not it's just not defamation, whatever else it is. It's not. But I've had this too. Sam Harris, um, who said much worse things about me than I ever did of him, also said I defamed him. There's this kind of like interesting. Really? Oh, yeah. There's this kind of interesting. Very interesting thing going on around the the speech debates where because I want to try to to absorb this empathically and not just like like lob an accusation yeah. of hypocrisy, which is I think that there is a feeling among people who feel that they could be really hurt by a shaming campaign at any moment. Forget mm-hmm. the fact that maybe they're prospering from kind of being in this edgelord space right now. Like they could be hurt by it at any moment. Yeah. There's a real feeling that their free speech is under attack. And by the same token, like because they feel that, then very extreme countermeasures, including trying to deploy the state to abridge the speech <laughs> of others who are attacking them, are completely warranted. And it's yeah, it's interesting. It makes sense, though. Like if you think about imagine you have a sense of pretty unfettered entitlement to speak freely. So not just to speak without 
the state getting in the way, but also to speak without there being immediate social consequences such as shame or guilt or accusations of, you know, inappropriate ideas, um, inappropriate policies you might support. Suppose, you you know, you've really had like a kind of a, a very um, open permission structure as to what you say when and how to whom. And you know, as I'm describing that, that feels quite unfamiliar. I mean, I, I, I think even as you know, a comparatively highly privileged woman, I think I'm probably more prone to to get shaming reactions when I, you know, write a New York Times piece, um, at least based on evidence that women um, tend to get more of these negative, hostile reactions. And um, of course, it's then you know much much worse for say women of color, but. Yeah, if you get yourself into the mindset of feeling ultra entitled to say your piece, then I think it does make sense that there would be this shocked reaction to pushback, even if that pushback, ironically, is just someone else exercising their freedom of speech and expressing an opinion, which, yeah, in this case, I felt like it was um, it was interesting even to watch it when um, the cease and desist letter came and... You know, I sent it to my husband, who's a lawyer, and he also laughed. We had a good laugh about it together because um, it was so absurd. But it even got many of the details of what I'd said wrong, which for a lawyer who's presumably paid good money, you know, by the hour to to write that cease and desist letter threatening to sue me for defamation on Peterson's behalf and, you know, going to everyone at Vox and everyone at Cornell, you know, in ways that we're frankly absurd, to not actually read what I'd written or said to Sean in that interview. Like, isn't that wild that it must have been such a, like, visceral, you can't do that to me, i.e. criticize me in a, I think, standard scholarly way that was pretty tempered. You know, I, I never called him a sexist or a misogynist because I don't really do that. Like, with the exception of someone like a Donald Trump or an Elliot Roger, that's not my... Um, that's not the way I operate. I identify misogynistic social systems and ways in which we're all or some of us more than others perpetuating them. So that's my scholarly shtick. Um, I do think there can be individual misogynists, but I have not that much interest in like identifying bad apples because it's a whole system that needs to be dismantled. And we all need to participate in that. So to see a, a Jordan Peterson reacting to me saying a, a pretty standard thing, which is that some of the particular assertions he made were attractive to his followers, say, because they um, reflected sexist beliefs and rationalized them, or that one particular assertion he'd made about enforced monogamy in a subsequent New York Times piece was an example of misogyny of a misogynistic assertion, which that doesn't make him a misogynist simpliciter. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't care. Um, what I care about is kind of pointing out the fine-grained problematic statements and doing the close reading, which I think I think scholars should welcome if they're really scholars. It's funny because this so describes a lot of the puzzling interactions I had with Sam Harris, um, which has oh, like backstory, mm-hmm. and, but our people go back and listen to the podcast. It's, it's, um, it's complicated. I don't want to waste time with it. But um, he continuously insisted that he was being called a racist. And um, 
the initial article by the IQ scholars had never, of course, called him a racist and we wouldn't have let them do that. And then in my subsequent discussions or pieces on this, I didn't do it either. But what was happening, and it makes a lot of sense out of the the theory that, that you've been putting forward, is I do think what was being said was that, you know, certainly I'll, I'll speak only for my part of this, was that this set of ideas, which is being presented without, I think, good context or good um, sense of its own history, fits into a long um, and deep and let's say racially problematic history in this country and saying that these ideas have been forbidden or saying that, you know, uh, or, or talking about them without understanding how they interact with this, like that's a problem. Like it's a it's a bad job of doing that. And he, I think, couldn't experience that with the idea being that he's in a social context that he needs to recognize more rather than he is being called something himself in terms of who he is. Like at some point in our conversation, he said, you know, I once sent this tweet saying like, haha, white supremacists, you know, like um, turns out white people have more Neanderthal blood than or DNA than than, wow. than, than black people. And like that and should show a you a friend, perhaps <laughs> he's actually he's actually said um, in the past that he thinks a real problem is people think having a black friend um, doesn't do more to protect you from those allegations. He's talked about how he thinks like, oh, this, that's a problem for whites with a black friend that's, that that he wow. thinks a discourse wow. that I have a black friend should carry more weight. And it speaks oh, to problems in our um, oh, in goodness. our discourse. <laughs> well, whatever it is, uh, uh, trying here very hard to um, be be generous. Um, what I find is interesting sort of about this crew of people is that a lot of times what people are saying is, you know, you're fitting into something bigger than yourself. You're fitting into a social exactly. context that you're not always you don't always seem to be working that hard to be aware of. And the the answer sometimes is no, like it's really just me here. And if you're saying this and you're saying it about me and my motivations and like my motivations are not misogyny or white supremacy or whatever it might be, like my motivations sure are just not. and right. And I am, too. And that's where the conversation goes deeply awry, right? You can't exactly. like, if, you know, there's something about how you absorb what people are saying about you too. Is it you or is it something you're part of? And like that they're trying to show different parts of the the environment that maybe you're fitting into or maybe you're influenced by. Imagine if people weren't defensive, but were rather alert to the possibility that what they'd said or their ideas were promulgating racist ideology or misogynistic ideology. You know, we're all part of a big toxic mess and I think have to get very real and very serious about recognizing our role in that mess in a way that may or may not, like I think we can have interesting disagreements about how much shame that should involve. But the most important thing is surely like being able to move forward with a sense of, well, how can we improve this mess? How can we you know, examine our own thinking as well as that of others for problematic elements and excise them and think better and differently about, you know, whatever the particular subject matter is there um, in ways that are inclusive and are consistent with anti-racist and anti-misogynistic egalitarian ends. Like, presumably the conversation, I'm guessing, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs, but it wasn't really about Sam Harris. He's just a powerful figurehead for a bunch of ideas that he then can take a forward-looking role in saying, wait up, this is actually problematic for these reasons. So he has some power and with it some responsibility there. But it's not about examining what's in his heart. We don't know. We don't care is sort of my typical thought. I'm actually very glad we sort of circled in this direction because it lets me bring up two pieces of, of conversation that I really wanted to make sure we, we got to. So one is actually about Jordan Peterson and some broader things in, in, in culture right now, thinking about Jordan Peterson as part of a social context. 
which is, I think, something that in culture has become very powerful and that Peterson speaks to with a lot of, I think, eloquence and force in a way is a lot of men feel shame, right? They feel as a, and, mm-hmm. and particularly a lot of white men feel there's a discourse that is telling them to be ashamed. And a lot of his argument, not the only thing he says, right? There's a self-help side to him and a kind of like baseline psychology side, but 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 some of the more controversial parts of his work are saying, no, you don't have to listen to that. There is no patriarchy. There is no white privilege. You should feel honored by your heritage and you should also feel that there's a lot to live up to and you know those people who are trying to make you feel bad they're the real dangers to society and it seems something you write about is that um there can be more enforcement of traditional gender roles but misogyny like there can become a more misogynistic environment at the same time as there is more social progress on actual patriarchy being made. And I'm curious if that's sort of the the way you see some of these, what can seem disconnected, but seem to me to be somewhat connected social movements. Yeah, I do see it that way. I, I see it as progress is never monolithic socially. So I think we've made, you know, very real feminist progress. You know, I wouldn't have been in that privileged position in that um, the way that I was if we hadn't made considerable feminist social progress. But I think that often as we see women entering particular male-dominated professions in greater numbers, and as we see women um, earning more in terms of, yeah, just, you know, looking back to that statistic about um, number of male-female households where the woman earns as much or more, um, you see huge amounts of pain and backlash And so part of what I wanted to try to argue in my book is, you know, I'm not advocating pessimism exactly, but I do think we have to look at the complexity of what we find. And sometimes we find enormous social progress coexisting with enormous hostility to people who might not even be the beneficiaries of that progress. They might be women who are much more vulnerable, who are then the result of a kind of toxic backlash Uh, that is the result of understandable human frustrations at losing your position in a pecking order that was invisible to you. So it doesn't appear to people who are in some of the positions you mentioned and who are white men who are resentful at the moment, it doesn't appear to them that they're losing unjust privileges. It appears to them they're just losing. And that can result in toxic explosions that are both comprehensible and disastrous for both them and the rest of us. Well, and it's just funny. Uh, one, one of the ingredients in that, I think, is just generational, right? We're, we're often talking about forces and societal uh, concepts and structures that have existed for, for long, long, long periods of time. Um, there was a, a blog post by actually a Canadian philosopher, I believe, named Joseph Heath. That, that was interesting on this. And he was oh, talking right. about being in a store with, I think it was his young son, and just seeing all of this, um, you know, kind of girl power shirts, you know, like mm-hmm. all these said, like the future is female girl power. And there's no kind of corresponding discourse for for young boys. And you can say, well, all of society is a, is a corresponding discourse like that for young boys. But you're saying like, well, but he, the, the young boys don't the know that. Where's the merchandise? <laughs> and I do think there's something, I mean, when I think of sort of like angry young, like white man YouTube, you know, I, I do think of that, this feeling of like, you know, like they're just here right now. Um, and that shouldn't take away from from what 
necessarily is being changed, but I, I think the way you put it is really is really useful there. That like that can just feel like losing. Yeah, and you know, here's the tragic thing. I think there there could be the merchandise. You know, I'm being tongue in cheek, obviously, but there are social roles that men and particularly men in dominant social positions, you know, white men could be filling and are meaningful and not inherently exploitative, and that's care work. And you have a lot of these positions where, um, you know, you get both unpaid and paid forms of it that men are not taking up because it's seen as not men's work to do, say, elder care or child care or to be the person who has a greater share of domestic responsibilities in addition to child-rearing duties that men are taking up in greater numbers. But it's like care work is meaningful. It needs doing. It's not inherently demeaning. It's not inherently hard on the body in a way of a lot of capitalist exploitative labor is. And it will always need doing. And so one thing I would love to see is a shift not to kind of empowering boys and men per se, but empowering them to do something meaningful, which is take on a greater share of traditionally feminine-coded care labor in ways that I think of as in keeping with, you know, what I, again, in tongue-in-cheek refer to as non-toxic masculinity. So I, I think this actually gets to a, a sort of useful point in the in the argument, which is, you know, if you listen to Peterson, I think his arguments are very much like the reverse of that, which is to say that I think if he were sitting there, like he would sort of scoff at that and he would say, boys like to hit things with sticks. And that, you know, and and the broad point he makes is that there is this effort to overcome what are fundamentally biological differences between the genders um, or or the sexes, more to the point, uh, where, you know, Women are more care oriented and people oriented and men are thing oriented and they're higher on aggression and they have all, you know, like men go out and they conquer and they kill like women stand and and any effort like efforts to change that are running up against uh, like fundamental dimensions of human nature. They will never be able to overcome. And so they're just going to end up scrambling and um, causing friction in society. Yeah, see, that's where I do think this is just a kind of classic piece of sexist ideology, in my opinion. No implications for Jordan Peterson, the man, in case he's listening and looking to sue me again. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, I would first of all say, look, lots of, you know, interesting empirical evidence points to the fact that if you incentivize men and women to be empathic and caring... They show roughly equal capacities for care. And with women, it's usually only if you prime gender and gender roles in various ways that you get these extra effects of women being more empathic. And so that suggests that this is very much something that's socially learned and not something that's, you know, quote unquote, natural or innate, which would be surprising because it's a pretty like broad brushstroke skill. You know, it's the kind of skill that can come in many different forms being caring. It can be very differently manifested in different people with different personalities. But it would be a little bit surprising if it were something that was a trait that was kind of gendered in a particularly rigid way, given that it it's a very broad behavioral spectrum of abilities, capacities, and uh, practiced uh, skilled exercise. 
So, yeah, I guess I would point to some of the studies that show that it it just doesn't look like that's the case. It looks like men, when incentivized properly, are as empathic as women. And also the ways in which it's sort of a convenient theory for those who do subscribe to the kind of traditional patriarchal mores, because one great way to try to enforce women's participation in a greater proportion of care work is to say, look, you'll just be better at it, sweetie. And you'll be happier with it. Yeah. I, I feel like that's another piece of it. Like you, he and I've seen other people say right. this too, is like the feminist movement hasn't made women happier. They're, they're you know, they're, they, they have a purpose and they're happier doing that purpose, not being in, in boardrooms. <laughs> I mean, all I can say is I'm a philosopher. I'm very happy being a philosopher. And that's a masculine coded humanities that has the lowest representation of women among um, any humanities field, but I think maybe theology and a similar underrepresentation problem to to math and STEM fields, or particularly you know things like computer science and pure physics and or theoretical physics and and pure math um, as opposed to applied. So you know it just. If you look within my own field, there are lots of people who say, look, women just aren't as interested. But then you dig a little bit into the numbers or the data and you find women are subject to immense amounts of sexual harassment that keep them out of the field and much less support and mentorship and various forms of, obviously, Peterson would scoff at this notion, but I can tell you for a fact, microaggressions that just build up to have a gradual kind of corrosive effect on women who might otherwise be entering the field in greater numbers. So whether it would be exactly 50-50, who knows? Who cares in a way? But at the moment, when we have just, I think, around um, 17% of tenured faculty are women in philosophy, it's just one example of fields where it would be all too easy to say, hey, don't worry about it. Women are naturally better at other things and happier, you know, doing things that are more oriented to insert false dichotomy. Because I can assure you that, too, that being interested in things and in people is not mutually exclusive because people are a kind of a thing. <laughs> and <laughs> you can be both a very abstract thinker and very interested in this social world. Um, you know, I, I think... I, I see your work as in that vein, and I, I see my own as as in that. I'm not sure if that resonates. No, but. that this that actually deeply. This is actually my problem with the thing people dichotomy, which is I understand like when you're looking at like trucks and dolls how you make that, and I yeah. genuinely don't understand how you do it when you're talking about professions, <laughs> um, because it just seems to me to be very much about how you do the profession and how you approach the work in almost all cases, whether or not it's a thing or people. And I mean, like, I think like veterinary medicine is like now considered like um, sort of people oriented rather than thing oriented, but other kinds of medicine are considered. It, it just seems to me that you get into a very quick thing that it's how we code and right. what you think the end goal is. Like, is political journalism thing-oriented or people-oriented? I mean, exactly. It's such a mushy, mushy clar- uh, classificatory scheme. And what's weird about it is it also doesn't track abstraction versus concrete, um, which itself, I'm not sure if that's a great dichotomy to impose. But, you know, I'm a logician by training originally, which is about as masculine-coded and sort of, you know, rigorous in its appearance as it gets. 
Um, and I gradually moved into a much more feminine coded part of philosophy, ethics and feminist philosophy, partly because I had good mentors saying, look, as a woman in philosophy, counterintuitively, you may be more attracted to logic than you otherwise would be because it feels like you're kind of proving your chops, no pun intended. And it feels like you're exercising masculine-coded abilities that women are systemically undermined in exhibiting. And so that might actually, you know, you might be um, steered in a right direction for partly the wrong reasons. And that, you know, was a very powerful piece of advice that I um, got in grad school. But it was only after I'd kind of been accepted as a budding logician, taken seriously and accepted into grad schools and gone to conferences and been treated well that I kind of felt that freedom to move into something more feminine coded because it felt like I didn't have as much left to prove that people were, you know, happily and given my very good teachers, professors and um, mentors very respectful of me as a someone who is interested in a more masculine coded area first. So I think it's just, it's so complex and I'm, I'm not saying there are any easy answers here, but one of the things to be alert to and a bit suspicious of, I think, in someone like Peterson's work is these easy social stereotypes of women as just naturally interested in, oh, look, what it happens, it just so happens the patriarchy has a vested interest in having women be naturally good at, happier at, better at, and so men are excused from doing forms of care work, which they should be expected to do in um, roughly equal proportion. Or, or that we just end up putting professions back and forth over the line. That yeah. like surgeons move eventually from being like, right now it's like, well, surgery is thing oriented because you have like knives and, <laughs> and then, but obviously you're working on people. And so you end up in these very strange spaces. But I, I think, I think to try to, Again, I don't think I do a good job in general in general life being Jordan Peterson, but I want to try to to mirror some yeah. of his thoughts, which is, I think something that he asks a lot, which is, well, then what does a does equality mean if we were to have a non patriarchal society? Does that mean that in every hierarchy, in every profession, in every industry, in every boardroom, in every 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 place thing whatever, that it's fifty fifty? That is equality just this mathematical concept where everybody's equally represented in everything? Or is there space for the idea that there may be differences and there may be changes and some people might want to do some things and, and some groups want to do others? And there's a version of equality that has that it's some it's sort of like averaged out as opposed to being, you know, mirrored at every fractal level of the of the organism. I mean, that seems like it's it's very possible. I think rather than looking at outcomes, it's often important to look at treatment. So, you know, what would we look for? Yeah. So rather than looking for, you know, what exactly a, a boys and girls representation in, in, say, math and science versus various humanities, let's look at who's called upon more often in the classroom by a teacher. And right now, according to, um, say, a 2009 book, Still Failing at Fairness, um, which was a, a kind of repeat study from the original, which was 95, um, boys are called upon far more often than girls 
and this accelerates. It's even more disproportionate in math and science. So at le- boys are called upon by teachers, I think, um, at least eight times more than girls are called upon. And um, I've seen estimates that are much higher than that, too. It's, you know, hard to get exact figures, and I never put too much emphasis on one figure. But teachers, including females, teachers, orient to boys more than girls. And so when that kind of condition is still operative, then I wouldn't look at outcomes that are differential, especially when that effect is greater in math and science. I wouldn't look at outcomes and say, hey, maybe it's down to natural differences in a way that would potentially discourage us from making efforts to make the classroom more egalitarian in terms of treatment. So I think the thing to aspire to is equality of treatment when people of different genders, races, classes, etc., enter, say, the classroom as just one microcosm of society where we could um, say what it would be to have a more equal classroom in quite concrete ways, when you raise your hand, you're roughly as likely to be called upon regardless of gender. And that's currently not true. What do you make of the argument that as you go up the um, ladder of gender equality, say like up into Scandinavia, you actually get more dispersion in terms of certain kinds of queer choice, like say computer science, than in the countries that are further down that ladder? Yeah. So one thing that intersects really interestingly with um, career choice is and degree of gender equality in a society is um, how prestigious and how well remunerated are certain professions in proportion to how masculine coded they are. So say in a country where the most basic avenues to financial success or freedom come via masculine coded fields like math and science, you can often see this counterintuitive effect of, say, women entering those fields in droves initially because feminine coded professions are get either pretty lousy pay or you have huge um, amounts of inequality in the society at large such that it might be that masculine coded professions get extremely high pay, something like that. So that's one avenue which just, it's just a brief window into we need to be a little bit careful looking how people's choices interact with what's valued and well compensated within a society. So that's super interesting. So you're saying there's sort of a dynamic feedback effect that as societies get more equal, some of the jobs that might be losing women because they've become more feminine can actually become more attractive again because their femininization stops hurting the professional compensation and treatment and and status so much? Yeah, well, you see these, I mean, you see massive effects in terms of you know, I think this is well known, when women enter professions and they become perceived as more feminine, pay tends to go down as a general matter. So I think, you know, this was seen in computer science, like the original um, quote-unquote computers were women. And it was, so you also get this converse effect where men's entry into positions also tends to up the um, salary. So when men started to enter um, the field of computing in large numbers, and again, I'm not a social scientist or a historian of this stuff, but my my rough um, and ready understanding is that as fields become more feminine, pay goes down. As fields become more masculine, again, perception pay goes up. 
And so what people choose, we would want to look carefully at the numbers um, in any given context to look at whether people are um, able to choose professions that, um, like, is there a way to choose a feminine coded profession and get to a position of financial um, security within a particular milieu? And if the answer is no, then it's not necessarily good news on balance when you see large numbers of women go into that profession from the perspective of overall social equality. It could be that, well, that's better than the alternative where they're excluded from those professions, but what would be still best is if professions were valued in a more equitable way. So it sounds like what you're saying is that as a kind of definition or a vision of equality in very equal societies, it may it may indeed be, we, we don't know, but it may indeed be that you'd have quite different professional decision-making between, um, between the sexes, but that right now, given how much has operated on people and on industries for how long and how it changes relative value of industries and all the rest of it, it's just, it's, it's impossible to parse that out. I think that's exactly right. I mean, we're still seeing, you know, even when we have, you know, quote unquote, very equal societies, we still get, you know, very uneven numbers of sexual harassment faced by men and women. So ideally, again, looking at treatment as a sort of metric here, ideally in a truly egalitarian society, we would get a roughly equal and very low number of sexual harassment faced by anyone in any industry. You know, bearing in mind equal doesn't mean just like equally bad in both directions, but it should mean equal and equitable. You know, it's a kind of honorific term in some ways. So I think until we have numbers which suggest that people in general, women included, are facing very low amounts of kind of backlash effects like sexual harassment, like sexual assault, as well as being subject to fewer of the subtle mechanisms by means of which sexism can be self-perpetuating. Yeah, I wouldn't want to generalize too quickly and say that we have, you know, a truly egalitarian state of play. I'd want to, yeah, dig into particular numbers as to say, you know, how common is um, harassment in the workplace? How common is street harassment? How common is date rape? How common is it to be subject to forms of bias in the classroom? Um, Look at these various domains of life. And once you have both equitable and good treatment within these different domains, you know, the workplace, the street, the classroom, and such and such, then I think we're getting to conditions where we could start to assess, well, what do people just prefer to do? And yeah, that may have a gender breakdown that's interesting. It may not. Um, I'm just kind of agnostic as to what would come out because it's a long way down the road. I think that's so interesting because it's also such a warning um, for me as somebody who does this sometimes about these toy models of society. Because as, as I'm thinking about what you're saying, it makes total sense. You can imagine a society where you take our society and you make it significantly more equitable in terms of, let's say, pay between feminine coded mm-hmm. and male and masculine coded jobs. But you keep sexual harassment the exact same. 
And then in that world, you do have a society that's made more strides towards equality, um, where feminine jobs are better paid, they have more status, but there's also the same amount of disproportionate sexual harassment and aggressions and, you know, feelings of maybe not being wanted in the room in these more traditionally masculine jobs. And in that world, what you would expect is actually a higher number of women going into the feminine coded jobs. So, yeah, exactly. And I mean, you also have to look at even counterintuitive ways in which you might potentially even get a higher amount of sexual harassment and sexual assault when we make egalitarian progress in certain directions because women are resented for being in masculine coded spaces and for, quote, taking what are, you know, quote, their jobs, what jobs that, um, you know, men often perceive themselves as entitled to over women. And I think those effects, yeah, they they interact in ways that can be teased apart, but would require really careful both analytical work, which is the kind of work that I do, and then empirical work to see, well, how does this bear out in practice to look at um, how equal things really are, not just by one or two measures, but by really looking at what sorts of world women walk through um, and girls walk through versus their male counterparts in different areas of life, in different stages of life, you know, healthcare, um, classroom, street, college, uh, workplace, workplace of many different kinds, and then, of course, going home, who's subject to what kinds of violence. One thing that speaks to, and some of this broader discussion of wages speaks to, is the way we treat motherhood. I'd be very curious for the feminist sort of philosophy take on this. Um, so you'll get into these conversations about the wage gap and particularly in highly industrialized and wealthy societies, a big part of it, not all of it, but a big part of it appears to be a motherhood penalty. And so sometimes the reaction will be, well, see, there is no wage gap. There's just a decision by women to have children, which men are uninvolved in, obviously. And so women just have to, to suffer on the, the, the wage penalty of that. And, and corporations and companies are just making a, a rational decision to pay women who are now going to be somewhat um, distracted by first um, having a child and then raising a child. And then there's this other way, it seems to me, of looking at it, which is we like to your point about a, a, an environment of misogyny, um, that we have just decided not to compensate in any way in capitalist societies, arguably the most important work any human beings ever do. And that rather than like explaining it away, it actually makes the picture look much worse. Um, and I'm I'm curious sort of how you think about that sort of motherhood wage gap question. Yeah, it's really interesting because, I mean, it's very hard to get good numbers on the wage gap. I'm always very reluctant. That's actually one of the figures I try to avoid because I do think there is this more complex and deeper picture that you're pointing to, that feminine coded forms of labor are systematically devalued. And I actually think we see this across the life span um, much more broadly, not just child care, but elder care are valuable forms of work that need doing Mostly women do them, and they're, they tend to be very underpaid, and men tend to be very reluctant to do them. We get these kind of devastating studies, say, that show that even in um, you know so-called Rust Belt areas where men are massively underemployed, they won't take quite well-remunerated elder care work when those jobs are available and will prefer to remain unemployed 
in large numbers because it's perceived as women's work. And I think, you know, whatever we think about exactly how to measure inequality, um, making those forms of labor more valued and more valuable in terms of how they're enumerated, it's just going to be essential to improve things, Um, especially if, like me, you're a bit skeptical that, you know, the traditional sort of vessel of uh, blue-collar work, the the steel factory, imaginatively, is, is coming back or ought to come back given environmental considerations, considerations of how exploitative those forms of labor often are. Do we really need to bring back to, say, American soil those industries, or do we need to radically reconsider what counts as important, valuable work and how to compensate for those hitherto invisible forms of feminine coded labor? Yeah, this seems to me to be such like a, an interesting part of just economic analysis in general, which is, are you talking about the economy and the values it holds as it exists, or are you talking about it as it could be? Right. And I think people right. have a lot of trouble with which one we're talking about. I mean, I feel this very strongly in the it, when you're dealing with the wage gap numbers where people begin controlling for things like hours worked. And you're like, OK, you, you've controlled for all these variables, but some of those variables are the thing that you're trying to measure, actually. Right? No, precisely. So, some of those variables are, are the way the wage gap operates, not they're not a, they're not a they don't explain it away there it's mechanism yeah no take the second shift problem for example where you know women have entered the workplace you know since the 60s as is well known um, in droves but men's participation in the invisible you know often invisible forms of labor at home Ali Russell Hustchild's you know term for this being the second shift problem where women are doing an enormous amount more domestic, as well as still to some extent child-rearing labor more when they're part of a a male-female dual-income household. And that problem, you know, it it makes sort of very, um, you know, snapshot-ish statistics on the wage gap hard to really know what to do with, and I tend not to use them for this reason, because part of what we're looking at is, again, the whole systemic nature of um, these oppressive social forces that, um, you know, part of it might be um, internalized. So women might feel more shame at having, you know, a house that doesn't look presentable. Part of it is, um, you know, there is a gendered division of labor where he might get more leisure time um, and do much less by way of domestic drudgery um, even as he might pick up more slack with respect to fathering, if we're seeing, you know, generalizing very broadly about patterns of participation in sort of home duties in that sphere. And yeah, it's hard to get an accurate picture, I think, without factoring all of that in to really get at its structural, systemic nature. This is now going to sort of take us beyond and sort of bring us to closing too. But your book has this very tantalizing footnote about a forthcoming project on something called melancholy whiteness. Ah, uh, are you are you oh, in a yeah. place where you can talk at all about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. That paper's out now. It it originally started as a response to something Judith Butler wrote, but she has this notion of um, melancholy, which is originally it's Freudian in um, its origin and. I should say I don't normally, you know, I admire Butler 
and Freud for that matter very much, but I, I was sort of a newcomer to thinking about either of them. And what it is, is this perpetual losing, this state of losing where you've never quite reconciled to the lost object. So you never mourn for what you cannot recognize you've, you've not quite lost. And I think of that as kind of the art of losing privilege in certain ways, um, because I think within the ideology of whiteness, there is this perpetual, um, at the moment, sense of loss that remains quite inarticulate, quite inchoate, and is about losing privileges that if you're within this kind of white supremacist space, you can't acknowledge the privilege that you originally had. So you can't give it up in the name of fairness, which is just what ought to be done. You can't reconcile yourself to a lost object that you can never successfully mourn for because it's unstatable that you had this social privilege that, you know, still lingers for sure, but you should be trying to master the art of losing it. And instead, it's this perpetual melancholic state of not coming to grips with that loss and not recognizing what is perhaps hard about it, but has to be faced in the name of just basic justice, fairness, equality. That's super interesting. I'm going to check out that paper. (laughs) Speaking of paper recommendations, uh, question we always use to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you over the years that you would recommend to the audience? Oh, yeah, I love this question. So I would say for this era, um, I'm sure many guests have said this, but Henry Rentz, Eichmann in Jerusalem. I read it on inauguration day in 2017 for the first time, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I I was uh, house-sitting for a friend, uh, just hanging out with his cats. And, um, yeah, I felt very eccentric just sitting with the cats, um, I'm not helping my image of crazy cat lady feminist uh, philosophers here very much. But but yeah, it was this, I was just riveted because it was the kind of book I'd grown up in my household. My father, um, you know, by, by training as a Holocaust historian, and it had this incredible presence, but I just, I had sort of snootily thought, oh, what does it have to teach me? And it turns out to be this riveting account of this figure who, far from appearing monstrous, appears to Irent to be a clown. Um, Eichmann's clownishness was one of the things that really got to her, his kind of, you know, meaningless repetition of phrases that um, captured some kind of triumphant period in his own life, his absolute inability to hear or see what he looked like from the point of view of someone else. So he has this memorable moment where he is... Eichmann, you know, as one of the chief architects of the Holocaust, is trying to uh, get a Jewish policeman to sympathize with him because Eichmann had such a rough time trying to climb the ranks of the Nazi party. And um, this Jewish policeman in Jerusalem is just like, oh man, like, you really expect me to sympathize with your difficulty getting to be a more highly ranked Nazi? Like, what the hell? Um... So anyway, that's one of the books I just think is essential reading for the Trump era and is also just like this brilliant portrait of this, yes, evil man who is banal. 
this. So obviously that's a controversial phrase, the banality of evil is the subtitle of the book, but I really, um, I love reading it and I love teaching it as a way to get students to think um, incisively about this portrait of evil that is nonetheless shocking in its um, banality and in the clownishness of he who's represented. And it seems to me to speak to some of your ideas about you can have these terrible social systems where the people inside them, you know, don't have to even believe that they're the, they themselves are evil, right? Or that they themselves are motivated by animus. He wasn't. I mean, he had a Jewish mistress, Jewish members of his family. He was in the most grotesque way superficially kind to a Jewish doctor who he knew who was sent to um, one of the concentration camps who called for him, and Eichmann sort of said, yes, what a sorry business, nothing I can do, old chap, and in got the guards to allow this Jewish doctor who was now imprisoned in one of the concentration camps to, he was allowed to sit and take rests during his job, which was meant to be less onerous of raking the path rather than one of the more demanding forms of labor. And two weeks later, he was gassed. So it's this haunting portrait of this man who is even capable of superficial kindness, kind of, but is nonetheless capable of, you know, this this Jewish doctor who he respected and um, knew quite well, he was capable of leaving him in a concentration camp. It's so much more chilling that way. (laughs) Isn't it? It really just... I'm actually teaching it tomorrow, and it really knocks me sideways every time I teach it. it it's very haunting, um, his superficial uh, his superficial moral capacities. There's something when, I, I've, uh, when I've read that book and, and some others, like there's a great book about um, Nazi Germans called They Thought They Were Free that I really love. But oh, I should one read of, that. One of the, um, it's just about ordinary kind of voters for the Nazi party. And it's just, it's a remarkable book. But one of the things that, you know, like as a Jewish person, but I think it's related to some of the other conversations um, we're having here. It's much scarier to believe that the people who would hurt me wouldn't have to hate me because I'm actually pretty exactly. well tuned to whether people hate me. Right. It, like I have a good antenna for like, are these people virulent anti-Semites? Like I, I tend to like be able to pick up on that. But like, do they just want to advance in their own like social circle or professional world? Uh, it, like it's much, it creates a much wider range of conditions out of which true evil can emerge. If you don't have to just like be watching for hatred, like, yes. Yeah, that's, no, that's exactly it. I mean, Eichmann was a sort of relentless social climber. He wanted to, um, he was passionate too about bureaucracy. Like he wasn't even a gray-faced pencil pusher. I think that's a common misconception that emerges out of Irene's account. He was passionate about efficient enforcement of and sort of operations of this, you know, behemoth he had constructed. And yeah, he wasn't hateful towards Jews whatsoever. I mean, his Jewish mistress, not not even just a kind of sexual relationship, but he had a love relationship with a Jewish woman. And I was intrigued too, because being Jewish myself and growing up with, um, you know, a lot of the um, stories about the Holocaust as kind of the paradigm of evil and the ultimate form of evil. But I'd noticed we get so few stories about the women. Um, I mean, Anne Frank accepted, but 
often when it comes to the actual concentration camps, you get many more stories from, you know, say a, a Primo Levi um, or an L.A. Vizel um, about the male experience rather than Jewish women's experiences of, say, sex slavery um, during the Holocaust for German soldiers, um, you know, and all of these things were were much more common than at least was allowed in my um, childhood sense of what was at stake there. And yeah, of course, part of it too is realizing that, you know, there's this myth that if you can just make yourself seem fully human to someone who wants to attack you, then they won't, but they will um, if they have other motivations that are powerful enough. And honestly, like, it's not clear that your humanity was in doubt because, you know, here we are talking, walking, reading, writing, you know, singing, dancing, doing all these human things. What's really to be skeptical of when it comes to your humanity? So other, in a way, I think more insidious explanations for why someone would attack other than they're literally somehow not understanding you're a fellow human being, where that actually went on the face of it, you know, it's not that plausible to think they missed that. It's too obvious to miss. So, yeah, I think that book is really worth reading again and again. So that's one. Sorry to go on to No, no, long. no. These are interesting conversations. Yeah, what are your other two? Obedience to Authority uh, by Stanley Milgram, I think, is a fascinating little book. And I I love it because everyone knows the gist of the Milgram experiments where someone who was a confederate of the experimenter appeared to um, be shocked to the point of uh, potentially killing them, causing enormous pain by someone who was paid $4.50 for their trouble to come into a lab and it was announced to them as a an experiment of, of the effects of punishment on learning. But it was just remarkable to see that two-thirds of participants in the original condition were willing to go all the way and shock this, um, to their eyes, naive, innocent subject, a nice uh, middle-aged man in a pork pie hat, according to the illustration. They're willing to shock him up to 450 volts for getting the wrong answer on this test. And the book is this fascinating expose of the fact that a lot of people who did this terrible seeming thing um, felt, uh, according to Milgram, that they disagreed with what they were doing and felt morally obligated to obey the experimenter. So not only were they not just evil people, but they were actually motivated by an ostensibly moral, um, a sense of it would have been wrong for them to leave the experiment. And what's interesting is how distorted that sense of right and wrong got in the presence of an authority figure who was asking them to shock an apparently innocent, nice, uh, smiling man for no good reason. I'm definitely sensing was... a pattern in your book recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they're all about, I mean, my obsession philosophically and socially is with authority. And I guess the third book is a recent one that I just read um, came out January 6th, and I've been riveted by it. Um, it's called Thick by Tressie McMillan Cottom, um, who's writing in the tradition of um, black feminist critical theory and sociology, philosophy. 
she has this just, it's a collection of essays, but just to give you a, a rough sense of the, the flavor of one of them, it's this question, who does David Brooks and Jonathan Chait, um, how many black women do they follow on Twitter? And the number turns out to be six each. And this is out of, you know, some, uh, I think it was like 270-ish um, for each of them, if I'm remembering right. But they follow um, six of the, you know, um, let's just say 300-odd people they follow on Twitter are black women. And the essay is called Girl Six. And it's just this brilliant, incredibly, to me, again, riveting reflection on who do we not follow socially? Who do we not look to as sources of authority? Who do we not, um, given our socially inculcated responses, look to for both answers, but also just direction in terms of what we should be thinking about? And so systematically revaluing black women's voices is something that that's an idea that's been very influential um, on me thinking about the work um, of people like Roxane Gay and in philosophy, Christy Dodson, among you know many, many others. And I think um, Cottom's collection is really adding to, um, yeah, this call not just to action but to attention to black women that I a huge believer in and really hope to walk the walk as well as uh, talk the talk with respect to as a white woman in the academy. And your book is called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, and I learned a huge amount from it, and it is the rare book that I actually recommend reading all the footnotes. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Kate Mann, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Professor Mann for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. To Topher Ruth at UC Berkeley, Jeff Geld uh, at Vox Media, Jillian Weinberger, our producer. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back just in a couple of days. 